Chapter 9 On the Offensive In contrast to the following chapter of being defensive, this is a chapter that is more akin to the proverbial or conversational sword. It's about how to argue effectively, prove your point, and get your way more often than not. After you feel secure in defending your psyche or thoughts, the next step isn't to contentedly stay still in regards to others. There are always situations in life that we shy away from because we aren't comfortable with confrontation. If you gave a poll to 100 people, I would wager that confrontation, public speaking, and heights are the fears that would be the most common. We just don't like going on the offensive because we are never sure if we are justified on what we are doing or saying. What if we're wrong? And what if they think we're stupid? Those are always possibilities. But one of the realizations about confrontation is that when we avoid it, we eventually paint ourselves into a mental prison that is of our own doing. We eventually let just about everything slide in the interest of avoiding conflict. And that's a very lonely existence. How can we embody some of the better practices of argumentation and confrontation? And how to make it so if you don't get your way, at least you aren't being trampled over. Best Practices You come home, tired from work, and see that your husband still hasn't arranged for the plumber to fix your sink, even though you've already reminded him about it several times. You feel that he's not carrying his share of the load in your relationship, which you take as a sign that he's losing interest in you. If he really cared about you and your relationship, he'd remember to take care of the things you've asked him to do, right? The thought pushes you to the edge of annoyance, flirting with the line toward anger. You spot him in the bedroom glued to his phone. You confront him about the sink. Sorry, honey, I forgot. I'll take care of it tomorrow, he says without looking up from his phone. You feel even more ignored and sense the blood rising up the back of your neck. This is about to turn into a fight, and you gear up to throw the first punch. Figuratively. Maybe. Arguments can happen in every relationship. Connect the lives of two individuals who have differing backgrounds, needs, values, perspectives, and ways of communicating, and here you have the ingredients for conflict. But those ingredients don't necessarily have to be cooked into a cold dish of disappointment, misery, and regret. You can learn a recipe for turning a point of conflict into a potential for growth, a ruinous argument into an effective conversation. To deal with conflict constructively, Eric Ravenscraft suggests that you first have to recognize that each conflict consists of two problem aspects, the situation and the emotion. In the above scenario, the problem situation is that the sink needs fixing, and the problem emotion is your feeling of frustration towards your partner for not getting it done. Your frustration then got compounded by your sense of being ignored, which hurt you, turning your emotion into anger. Now consider what's likely to happen if you try to resolve the problem situation without first addressing the problem emotion. Chances are what'll ensue will be an argument fueled by the problem emotion, that is, anger, instead of a mature conversation focused on resolving the problem situation. This is how couples end up having fights that drag in all other past offenses completely unrelated to the present situation. What's taken control is the problem emotion, while the problem situation has been completely swept to the side. 
To avoid having this kind of argument that ultimately accomplishes nothing but increasing the resentment of each partner toward the other, Dr. Lerner suggests dealing with the two problem aspects separately. First, deal with the problem emotion. If you feel angry, take a moment to calm yourself down. Take slow, deep breaths. Go for a walk or write your anger out on a piece of paper, then burn it. Don't just take off with your partner clueless about what you're trying to do, though. Before you institute your self-prescribed anger management ritual, it's best if you've informed your significant other that you just need to take a breather so that you can deal with the situation better later. Once you've calmed down enough, make sure you return to your partner, this time to resolve the second part of the problem, the situation. Because you've managed the problem emotion, you are now better able to approach the situation rationally and with an open mind. When you do discuss with your significant other, take the stance of a collaborative partner. Act to find a win-win solution for both parties instead of insisting that you must win the fight and rub defeat in your opponent's face. When you take the collaborative approach, you avoid having a messy argument and instead hold a discussion that helps both parties feel heard and arrive at a solution. So, just how do you carry out a conversation with your partner that's collaborative, solution-oriented, and makes them feel truly heard? Psychologist and relationship expert Dr. Shannon Kolakowski recommends the following three-step approach. Ask, validate, and join. First, ask. This step is about asking your partner whether you've understood their point correctly. This will need you to paraphrase what your partner has just said, then ask them if you got it right. For example, say, What I'm hearing is that you feel controlled when I constantly nag you about household chores. Is this what you're trying to say? Most arguments escalate to irredeemable heights because each person piles on a counter-argument without first truly understanding what the other person has just said. Asking for clarifications and seeking to listen first before itching to launch a counter-attack helps the conversation move forward in a productive way. Second, validate. Once you have a good grasp of how your partner views the problem, validate their emotions about it. This doesn't mean you should agree with everything they're saying just to give an end to the argument. Validating means acknowledging the person's right to feel the way they feel and communicating an understanding of why they may feel or see the situation that way. To do this, you might say, Given the situation, it's completely understandable that you'd feel that way. This helps your partner feel that they're not talking to a wall after all that their concerns are being heard and considered in a legitimate way. Third, join. This step is what truly transforms you and your partner from two people discussing their thoughts and feelings with one another to a collaborative partnership determined to resolve the conflict and improve the relationship. Joining eliminates the you-against-me stance and replaces it with the we-against-the-problem outlook. This creates a team mindset reminding you that the enemy is not each other, but the problem at hand. In this step, you might say, I want the same things you do, to make this relationship work and move forward with a better understanding of each other. We can both figure out how to do this together. This brings your relationship to the forefront, reminding both of you to focus on it as your main concern and not on the background noise of anger, pride, and selfishness that ring loud in every argument if you so allow. 
As you go through the steps of asking, validating, and joining with your partner, remember to leave your ego outside the door. The entire process is not so that you could have the last word or win the argument for yourself, but so that you could find a common ground where you and your significant other can build a stronger relationship. Moreover, in the course of your conversation, stick to stating the facts instead of throwing evaluations at your partner. For instance, saying, I've asked you to call the plumber twice and both times you said you were going to call him, is stating a fact. On the other hand, saying, you never take care of things around the house, is an evaluation. You may see how bringing up such an evaluation may be taken by your partner as an unfair accusation. Maybe he does help out around the house, just not in the way you expected. So to avoid inciting negative reactions, steer clear of evaluations. As an alternative to stating evaluations, use I feel statements. For example, instead of declaring, you never take care of things around the house, Say, I feel frustrated when things I expected to be taken care of are not done. This way of stating the problem shows your partner that you recognize how your own expectations are playing a role in the frustration that you feel, instead of putting all the blame for it on him. After stating how you feel about the situation, the next question in the other person's mind is typically, Well, what could I have done better? Some arguments never end because one person fixates on the wrong that's been done and keeps drilling into the other what shouldn't be done in the future. Thus, the conversation never moves forward to what can be done to remedy the situation. Avoid falling into that fixation trap by framing your statements using positive language. State what you want to happen, such as, It would mean a lot to me if you do things when you say you will or at least tell me when you'll be unable to do it so we can work out a different arrangement. This way, the other person knows how to proceed moving forward instead of being stuck in a labyrinth of blame. Finally, when your partner's temper still flares despite your best efforts to keep the conversation calm and constructive, remember to have empathy. Imagine what it would be like being the person your partner is and consider their reactions from their own view given their respective histories and personalities. Is he taking the facts you're stating as offensive comments on his behavior? Maybe he's reacting that way because of deeper insecurities influenced by his past negative experiences and triggered by the situation. Keep in mind that while conflicts and arguments can happen in every relationship, they don't need to be catastrophic events that bring your partnership to ruin. Ultimately, it's up to how you handle those first few biting remarks or moments of icy silence that'll spell the difference between a tumultuous breakup and a well-nurtured companionship. No ad hominem. Arguments are inevitable, even with your best friends and significant other. Actually, they might occur even more with them. But time after time, studies, most famously by John Gottman, have shown that how effectively and efficiently you resolve conflict with someone is a sign of how long those relationships will last. Graceful and effective conflict resolution is the topic for another book, but there is one golden rule that you must abide by. No ad hominem attacks. Ad hominem is the Latin term for an attack on the person. In fact, that's the literal meaning of ad hominem, to the man or against the man. In other words, an ad hominem attack is making a personal attack on the other person that is unrelated to the point at hand. 
It was originally coined for a debate tactic where a person arguing with another person attacks that person's character instead of that person's argument or logic. The hope is the person being attacked would spend too much time protecting his or her character that they drop their argument altogether. In a sense, it's a smokescreen for the attacker to escape the original issue and live another day. If you hear someone attacking you on this basis, just know that they are grasping at straws and have nothing else to say. It's a sign of weakness. Here's a typical ad hominem argument. Lisa, you forgot to get gas for the car again. Could you next time, please? What about you? At least I can afford it, unlike you. How's your so-called job? Note that the challenge is not against the validity or soundness of the argument. Indeed, it doesn't even acknowledge or address it. The attack is against the person making the proposal, and the emotional reaction might indeed make the first speaker forget about the gas issue. Not every ad hominem is as obvious and blatant as this example. Most, in fact, are subtle and difficult to detect. Ad hominems are logical fallacies. They are dirty tricks. They have no place at all in conversations. They can be incredibly toxic and are often the hallmark of someone that can't take responsibility for their own actions. They might not even realize what they're doing is massively deflecting any fault of their own. There are jokes that come off like ad hominems, and I've already covered in the earlier parts of this book how you should handle those jokes. Simply agree with the joke, exaggerate it, and it will all go away. An ad hominem, on the other hand, is an insult. It's just meant to put you down. It's all about attacking a person's character. Here are ad hominem mistakes to avoid or be aware of, or alternatively, to use frequently. Going over their heads. This is where you give the impression that you are above the other person in terms of intelligence, social class, or ability. I would reply to that, but I'm not sure you'll get it. What you're saying is that the person is too stupid or too intellectually deficient to understand the reply you'd like to make. Even you can get it. The even you assumes that you are at a high point, but more importantly that the other person is at an extremely low point. You are telling that person that there are ideas that even idiots can get, and since they are an idiot, they should get it. I used to think that way. You are telling that person that you used to think like them, but not anymore. Now you're no longer stupid and mentally challenged like them. Wishful thinking. This is when you impose an alternative explanation that's demeaning to the thought processes of the person you're talking to. You then try to rationalize why they think the way they think. You think that way because you were abused as a child, weren't you? This is dismissive and insulting. You are saying the person is wrong but should be excused because that person is psychologically damaged. It's a double whammy. Agreeing 100% is impossible, but there's certainly a healthy way to discuss these differences. Keeping ad hominem attacks to the minimum is a large aspect of the healthy method. Appeal to Perfection As all conversations have the seeds for a potential debate, it's important to know how to argue and defend yourself. If you are caught flat-footed and unready when you need to defend yourself, it will be very easy for people to steamroll you. If this happens repeatedly, especially in public, prepare for people's respect for you to plummet and the judgments to rise. 
More often than not, arguments depend on tricks and logical fallacies that don't hold up when put to higher scrutiny. Remember, logical fallacies never address the core of the issue being argued. People who resort to them are not really engaging in argumentation. Instead, they are trying to cover their lack of knowledge or reason with deceptive tricks that make it appear like they are winning. One of the most common argumentation tricks people will try to pull on you is an appeal to perfection. They will refute your argument because, according to them, what you propose is not the perfect solution, and anything that isn't perfect is not worth doing. This way of arguing ignores the fact that there are intermediary solutions. Solutions that are less than perfect, but are nonetheless practical. By appealing to a perfect be-all, end-all solution, they make it seem that your argument is defective. In reality, you're just being practical. The appeal to perfection also takes any argument to an illogical conclusion, which is never reasonable to plan for. An example is simply, "Why should I shower? I'm just going to need another shower in a day or two." This is an appeal to perfection. With the implication being a shower should clean you once and for all time, it ignores the intermediary benefits of a shower. There are obvious alternatives to being 100% clean and 100% dirty. Never showering is an unreasonable conclusion drawn that is supposed to prove a point. If you pursue this kind of reasoning to its logical conclusion, you'll get absurd and ridiculous results. One might as well argue that you should not eat today because you'll be hungry again tomorrow anyway. But the reason it works is because people don't notice that the argument has been framed in a black and white manner. This tactic tends to irritate people because the person using it jumps to conclusions that involve perfect states. The person making this argument ignores everything that is short of that perfect state. Nothing is ever good enough for that person, so you might as well drop your argument. It really creates a refutation for everything. This is frustrating because it's dismissive, while at the same time not really addressing anything. The other person hasn't offered a solution; they have just torn yours down in a way that isn't productive. The appeal to perfection tactic is usually used by those that can't seem to offer alternative solutions. Their focus is on being correct, and technically, they can almost always be correct by an appeal to perfection. They're correct, like a stopped clock is correct twice a day. Sowing seeds of doubt. This is a sneaky way of arguing because it can seem innocent and subtle. Even the name, sowing seeds of doubts, conjures an image of a secret agent lying in wait for years for his plans to come to fruition. The secret agent might integrate and appear to be a member of your society. So this argument method can be difficult to see sometimes. Basically, the person looks at your argument and nitpicks at the smallest weaknesses and uncertainties while ignoring the greater benefits, no matter how irrelevant the flaw might be. It can be phrased as an innocent question, which disarms you. This person is essentially trying to undermine your confidence in the solution that you bring to the table. At first glance, this appears more legitimate than other methods of arguing. They might actually have a point regarding those details, but it is inevitable that this becomes transparent because people will latch on to the smallest of details that don't impact the overall argument. In many cases, they seem to make up details to nitpick and doubt. There is a rather famous case of triviality that demonstrates sowing seeds of doubt in action.
A committee was appointed to design a nuclear power plant, a rather large undertaking, obviously. Yet the committee stalled for extended periods of time and was ultimately unable to complete the task because they could not agree on the design of a bike shed. Literally, a shed used to store bikes next to the reactor. That was a true case of the inability to see the forest for the trees. And it's what people will do to you when they sow seeds of doubt. They will claim that your bike shed has problems and must be put up for debate, despite the fact that in the end, the bike shed doesn't impact the overall plan whatsoever. People who sow seeds of doubt don't actually know or understand your argument. It's not about the argument or logic. It's just about winning a perceived competition. They just latch on to the first thing they can find a flaw with and hope that derails your overall argument. For example, you propose a new public transport system that is based on trams, which are typically louder than normal buses. This person likely isn't aware of the statistical advantages and efficiency that trams offer over buses and metro systems, or the fact that many countries in South America and Europe have employed similar systems to great success. They don't care about all that. All they see is that you are proposing a system that they aren't interested in. That's all they need to know to go pick up and run with their argument. What's their argument? But they'll be ugly. But they'll be so loud and disturb the peace. But... In other words, this person doesn't really care about the practical reality of coming up with a solution. All this person is looking for is some sort of plausible or seemingly logical weakness in your proposition. They're just trying to poke holes and weaken your confidence. If you suspect someone is trying to sow seeds of doubt to you, you just have to doubt their doubt. Call them out on it and ask them to be specific. Walk them through the thinking process of why you think a particular course of action makes more sense compared to others. Most importantly, Ask why it matters in the grand scheme of your argument or proposal. Just as they innocently sowed seeds of doubt, you can also innocently ask their opinion here. When you call them out as to why the doubt, they will be put on the defense. They'll have to justify their irrelevant argument and sound intelligent at the same time. There is no funnier sight than someone desperately trying to justify an argument that has zero basis while attempting to sound smart. Since arguments are based on facts and logic can be applied to those facts, calling out their doubts and asking them to explain is a winning strategy. Nine times out of ten, these people are just going to draw a blank. Sowing the seeds of doubt is designed to simply trip you up. Clarifying questions Sometimes you just come across people whose primary goal seems to be engaging and arguing with you. There's no rhyme or reason, as some people just get their buttons pushed by the sight of your face. Whatever you say, they'll have a sarcastic retort for. There's no avoiding that they are going to try to pick your statements apart. When you encounter someone like this, your best defense is to overwhelm them with clarifying questions. When a person challenges something you say, they're almost always making an assertion. Assertions need to be based on something, otherwise they're just opinions. But when someone makes an assertion, it is often put forth as a fact. So if it's a fact, then where is the proof and backup for it? This is where your clarifying questions come into play. Since they are asserting something as a fact, they must bear the burden of proving themselves correct. 
Clarify exactly why they think they are correct and what evidence there is. Get them to clarify their position against your position. What makes them think they are right and you are wrong? Oh, can you tell me why it's wrong? Where did you read that? And what year was that study published? Is that author actually legitimate? So why do you think that contradicts what I said? What part exactly said it and what did it say? So why am I wrong? Where is the flaw in my logic? Done correctly, you essentially back the other person into a verbal corner and force them to admit their lack of knowledge. Well, I don't really remember. That's not my point. Yeah, that's true too. Many people adopt a smug look when they judge other people's positions. They throw all sorts of labels around such as inaccurate, wrong, insane, exaggerated, or ignorant. They are well within their rights to do so. But you are within your rights to shift the burden of proof back to them with clarifying questions. Usually, their smug look fades away quite quickly. They claim that your position is wrong. Have them explain why they think it's wrong in detail with evidence. You're taking shots, but you're not directly fighting back at your opponent. Best of all, if you phrase it innocently, you're just wondering about their stance. Give them the task of rationalizing their objection so you can answer it point by point. This actually turns out beneficial for you as you get chances to clarify your position further. When people attack you without any justification or evidence, they are acting emotionally. People who are weak thinkers often speak with their emotions. They blurt out their discontent and unhappiness first, and logic follows, if at all. They can't tell you their reasons, they just feel that way, and that doesn't help anyone. Bring an element of logic and use the opportunity to ask clarifying questions. Those who cannot back up their challenge will end up with egg on their face. Beat the straw man. This might be an argument tactic that you're familiar with or have possibly even used before. The straw man argument finds flaws in arguments by oversimplifying it, taking it to the extreme and attacking that version. The extreme version is the straw man, and it is so different from the actual argument that you don't even realize you are arguing against something that doesn't matter. So it's actually not even attacking the actual argument put forth, just a disguised version that is superficially similar. It misrepresents the argument and inevitably makes it impossible. For instance, John, I don't like birds that much. Bob, so you're in favor of bird genocide? Where does it end? Mammal genocide? The second person completely twisted the first person's words and misrepresented their position. That's the origin of the straw man. Another opponent or argument is created, but they are illusory and thus made of straw. Fake. Conjured. Easily blown away. Bob makes an argument that he can easily refute and hopes that John doesn't quite notice the difference. The straw man puts words in the other person's mouth and ridicules those words. Fortunately for you, the straw man argument is usually relatively transparent and easy to defeat. When you're not sure if you're faced with it, simply ask yourself the following question. What was the point I was making? Is the end conclusion actually what the alleged straw man is saying? It's likely not, so you can call it out as manipulative 
putting words in your mouth and misrepresentation. More importantly, you can make it known that they are resorting to the straw man because they can't argue on your level. The straw man is frustrating because it is so commonplace. Just log on to Facebook and you'll see it in many forms. Remember, someone has the sole purpose of making you look bad when they use it. They are purposefully lying and misrepresenting your position so that they can smash you down. They're not addressing the argument at that point. They are addressing your personality. Don't be afraid to take offense and call it out. Takeaways The time of self-defense has to end sometime, and sometimes the best defense is a good offense. Therefore, this chapter discusses some of the general methods to attack others, parry their attacks, and win arguments to get your way more often than not. There are many best practices for arguing and going on the offensive. Admittedly, some of them are about making the interaction less offensive overall. First, deal with the two separate problems of emotion and the situation. Second, use a three-step method of ask, validate, and join. Finally, avoid negative evaluations and focus on how you are affected by using I feel statements. Ad hominem is a sign of weakness where you argue against someone personally rather than their argument. It's emotional and illogical. Appeal to perfection is where you poke one hole in an argument and supposedly that is supposed to discredit everything. But that's a fallacy. Sowing seeds of doubt is where you poke holes in an argument, but for the purpose of undermining their confidence in it. Clarifying questions is where you become a pedant and try to poke holes in other people's assertions and opinions. Beat the straw man is where you make sure to identify a straw man argument and defuse it, or you can create your own.